Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. So as we open up, let's let's go to the Lord in prayer. And the end of this, Jesus really talked to Randy and I a lot about something at the end that we haven't done as a church before. And I think it's going to be really powerful, so I'm excited about that. And hang, hang tight. This is going to be really, really neat at the very end. So, Lord, we just come before you. God, we thank you for your love. God, we thank you for 1 John 2.27. God, we do pray that your anointing would teach us everything as we open up and search your word for the depths out of the book of Hebrews. Thank you, Lord, for everything you put in it for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I have this slide to start this book every week, but 1 John 2, 27 and 28, it's all about growing and fostering and strengthening and growing an unashamed bride for Jesus' return. That's what this is all about. And how you do that is you've got to cling to your faith. And the only way to build your faith, as we talk about every week, is Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And so as we dive into this, don't lose sight that these are not stories and words that Lord, the Lord placed here for some ancient generation, some group of people that it doesn't relate to us today. That's, that's not the case. The Lord has preserved this for us today, and it's going to be really powerful. So the outline, every week we look at this, a God-man better than the angels, chapters 1 and 2. That's where we are in, in the book of Hebrews there's an outline for all 13 chapters as we go through this. I, I honestly thought maybe we would be covering about a chapter a week, but the Lord has had other plans. And so I don't know if we'll take a year to get through this like we did Revelation, but it's important. And we're going to go at the pace the Lord leads because the Holy Spirit has a lot here for us. This entire book is built around these five warnings to believers. The whole book is, is about the danger of letting all of this slip, this faith and everything that we have going on. And actually, the first warning we're covering today, it's the danger of drifting, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And it's really important for us as the body of Christ to understand that you have something at stake that is not your salvation. It's your relationship with the Lord. And once you're saved, again, I, I hit on this every single week, you can't lose it. You did nothing to earn it. It's a gift. It's given to you. John 10 covers that. Jesus talks very clearly about all that the Father has given him. He has lost none. You can't be lost once you're saved. But you can lose inheritance, rewards, and a relationship. And that's what these five warnings are about. Each one builds on the other, and it ultimately culminates with apostasy, where you finally just turn your back on the Lord altogether. But that's what this is all about. Hebrews gives the warning and Revelation gives that outcome of Jesus in chapter 3, verse 16. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. He does not want a lukewarm church. 
He does not want you in your relationship with him to be lukewarm. And if that's the case, you need to get that right so that you too can have an inheritance with him in the millennium. That's what this is all about, is, is serving and, and running toward him. So the warnings are in place because God is longing for a deep relationship. That's what this is all about. It's a deep relationship. In this first warning, God is sounding the alarm to not drift. Do not let your grip on Jesus slip. You're to stay steadfast and cling to him. That's what this whole book, the Holy Spirit wrote, is about. The book is built on these five warnings because a kingdom is at hand. Jesus is going to set up his kingdom for the millennium. And the question is, will you stay steadfast and go into greater inheritance of faithful service? Or will you start to drift away and lose what is at stake? And what is at stake is not your salvation. That's not what it is. The kingdom that Jesus is to set up is laced throughout the entire Bible. It's a central theme from cover to cover is the kingdom. When you are sensitive to this, you will see this all over the Bible. But 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28, Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God. See, this is, this is the, the common theme from cover to cover, is Jesus building a kingdom to deliver it to the Father. And the ultimate end of that is the thousand-year millennium reign. It's going to take him a thousand years to build the kingdom that he wants delivered to the Father, which is incredible. Even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. See, at the end of the millennium, there is no more death going into the new heaven and the new earth. Okay, so at the end of the seven-year tribulation, Jesus establishes the kingdom. We've talked about this when we went through Revelation. We hit on chapter 21 through the, the whole chapter, frankly, is all about Jesus setting up the millennium. So chapter 20, verse 1, I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold on the dragon, on Satan, that serpent, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. That's at the very end of the millennium. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. Remember, during the tribulation, there's, there could be billions of martyrs for Christ during that time people that do not rebuke him, and they don't take the mark of the beast, and they are beheaded as a result. For the word of God, in which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ. There it is again, a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. There it is again. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, on such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. I think the Holy Spirit wants us to realize the kingdom is a thousand years, the millennium. Again, he hits this six times in these passages. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, 
and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about in the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast in the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne. So this is after the millennium. And him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. See, this is the end. This is when the kingdom is delivered finally that we just looked at. When death is conquered, and it's here at the end of the millennium, when there is no more death once and for all. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Six references to a thousand years, 1,000 years. And that's what Hebrews is all about, is building this unashamed bride for the kingdom. And you could kind of go down a trail of 6,000 years. Was this the lease given to man for the earth from God? Linked to man coming to life on the sixth day in Genesis 1. You can go pray about that. There's lots of references to man having 6,000 years. The kingdom has a capital, though. It's in Jerusalem. It has a king, and his name's Jesus. And the whole thing that we are studying now, after we studied Revelation, is preparing the bride for that kingdom. That's, that's the point. That's why the Lord took us here next. The kingdom is the world to come in Hebrews 2, verse 5. The kingdom will be when the Father has put, quote, all things in subjection under his feet in Hebrews 2, verse 8. This kingdom focus is, is really what's at hand. Thy kingdom come. Think about what we call generically the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You are praying for this kingdom when you pray that. Thy kingdom come. The millennial reign of Christ as promised to David in 2 Samuel 7. It's promised to Mary in Luke 1. It's confirmed and detailed all through Revelation. And you have a place waiting for you. You've got a place in that kingdom. That's what Jesus went to go build in John 14. And we looked at these in, in Revelation in the study, but as a reminder, this is not an all-inclusive list. There are five crowns in the Bible, and there are eight rewards to the overcomer in Revelation. But I don't think this is an all-inclusive list. This is something that the Holy Spirit wrote in there to give you an idea of what is ahead for you. The crown of life in James 1.12 in Revelation 2.10, the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4.8, the crown of glory in 1 Peter 5, the crown imperishable in 1 Corinthians 9, the crown of rejoicing in 1 Thessalonians 2. Now, when you look at these crowns, look at this, the crown of life in James 1.12, for example. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. See, every one of these crowns is linked to doing something 
something that you endure, something that you press on for the Lord in, something that you are looking toward in your life. The crown of life is linked to enduring temptation. Can you endure it such that it doesn't take over your life? If you can, there's a crown of life waiting for you that Jesus has stored up for you. The crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy 4, 8, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. If you are looking for the rapture, you have a crown of righteousness laid up for you, that's waiting for you, that Jesus is holding and waiting for you to welcome you in as a son or a daughter into his kingdom. It's incredible when you think about this. I mean, I really think about this. My, my entire life growing up in church, I never heard anything like this ever. My whole life. I never had anyone bring me along and say, hey, you know, there's a reason for you to cling to your faith. And it's not just so you can live a righteous life. It's because when you go to meet Jesus, there's something waiting for you. And it's, it's an inheritance in a place in his kingdom. And when you think about that eternal perspective, I hope it gives you a sense of urgency. That's the point of going through this, is a sense of urgency. You don't want to get to the party. Remember we talked about in Revelation 4 and 5 when we're in the throne room and we're casting our crowns at the feet of Jesus. If you've ever been to a party and you've forgotten a gift, it's embarrassing. You know, it is you show up and you just feel awkward. You're like, oh, I yeah, I'm sorry. I just... I forgot. Even when you take your kids to a birthday party and you didn't have a gift, it's kind of embarrassing. But don't come to this party that we're all going to be invited to and not show up with a gift. And that gift is faithful service and these crowns that Jesus has for you because we are going to throw them at his feet and give all glory to him. The crown of glory in 1 Peter 5, feed the flock, God, feed the flock of God which is among you taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being ensembles to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. See, if you have a place in ministering to God's people, it could be a family member, it could be a friend, could be anyone. There's a crown for you, the crown imperishable. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be a partaker thereof with you. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain, and every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible I therefore so run, not as uncertainty, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, in other words, in vain, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. You know, there's a crown for running this race and continuing. The crown of rejoicing, for what is our hope or the joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. See, at the rapture, if you've led people to the Lord, if you've been obedient and you've been witnessing and people have been saved through your obedience of leading them, they are your joy at the rapture. You get joy in that. 
It's incredible. Look what Jesus laid out in, in Revelation. To eat of the tree of life, Revelation 2.7, not heard of the second death. In verse 11, the hidden manna and white stone, new name in, in verse 17. Power over the nations in verse 26. Again, I'm excited about that one. I'm looking forward to see seeing some of us <laughs> rule over some nations in here. There's some people that need fixing. White Raymond in chapter 3, verse 5, pillar in a new name in verse 12, sit with Christ on his throne in verse 21, and inherit all things at the end of the book in 21, verse 7. So remember, he lays out eight in Revelation because eight is the number of new beginnings. It's a new beginning. It's a new beginning in an inheritance that God has laid up for you. If you run the race steadfast, that's the key. Do not drift. And that's what we're going to get into in Hebrews 2 today. Jesus is pleading with us to stay steadfast. That's the, the goal. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. You have something you can lose. And when you contrast this to your salvation from John 10, that you can't lose. Of all the Father has given me, I've lost none. You can't get out of his grip. As badly as Noah and the eight wanted to, they couldn't exit the ark until God opened the door, and then they were brought out. You go down this whole, the whole Bible, there's a typology of you not losing your salvation everywhere. The children of Israel wanted to go back to Egypt in bondage, and God wouldn't let them. Instead, they perished in the walk. So you see this whole pattern throughout the Bible of, God's people can't lose once they're delivered, but they can fall astray and not be profitable and of great service for him and his kingdom. That's the difference. And that's something that, again, I was, this, this whole thing, when you get this focus, it changes how you read the Bible because you've got a race to run. The entire book of Hebrews is written to the believer it's not just a book on how and why you should get saved. In fact, the book doesn't cover that really. It's not a book about salvation. The book is for us who are born again and why we should run the race. The original recipients were Christians. Each warning will substantiate that fact, that it was two believers. And you have to think about, here's the question, were the people addressed saved or unsaved? You know, that's a key question. And over 20 times in the book, the author that the Holy Spirit uses to write this message includes himself in the warnings. He'll use phrases like we, we, we. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Holding fast. God's not urging unsaved people to cling to a false profession. He's asking us, to hold fast to what we have. So in the opening verse of chapter 2, therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Okay, so this is the first warning to us as believers. The opening word, therefore, it points us back to chapter 1 and the millennial glory of Jesus. Look at verse 8 from chapter 1. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. See, the Father is confirming the Son's deity by calling him God. And we talked about that last time, how he's saying, But unto the Son he saith, 
Thy throne, O God, this is the Father speaking, is forever and ever. And so here's, it's pointing back to the millennial reign of Christ because that is sure and certain. Therefore, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed. So everything that chapter one built as a superiority of Jesus and his coming kingdom leads to the pleading of the Holy Spirit to us. And that's what's opening chapter two here. It's the pleading from the Holy Spirit. The first warning starts with giving the more earnest heed. Look at that phrase, to give the more earnest heed. In the Greek, it's a word that I will completely butcher and not try to pronounce. Maybe uh, someday I'll take a Greek class and learn how to do this for you guys. But the Greek word there, it means more abundantly, more in a greater degree, more earnestly, more exceedingly, especially above others. So it's the same word, when you look this up, it's the same word used of the Jews when shouting to crucify Jesus. And in Mark 15, 14, then Pilate said unto them, why, what evil hath he done? See, I, I cannot wait to have a conversation with Pilate in heaven. I believe he's going to be there because I, I think that he knew exactly who Jesus was. He washed his hands of it. Remember, he has the, the basin of water. And he says, this blood is on your hands, not mine. And at the end, whenever they go and they seal the, the tomb, remember the guys come to him and say, let us put a watch around it and seal it unless the disciples come and steal his body and a greater, they thought, a greater lie be propagated. And remember, Pilate says, go ahead, do whatever you want, seal the best you can. You know, you can hear the sarcasm in his voice like, man, you could set every battalion in the Roman military in front of this thing. That guy's coming out of the tomb. I don't care what you put in front of it. And, and, he, uh, and then, of course, he, his wife had the dream, remember? So I, I think Pilate is going to be a really interesting guy to talk to on, on the position he was in. But here you see him, why, what evil hath he done? See, he's, he knows this man is innocent. But the Jews, they cried out the more exceedingly, the same Greek word here, they cried out the more exceedingly crucify him. See, the same passion that you and I are to run and chase after life is the same passion you can run and chase after for death. It's the same way. And it's the more exceedingly to give more earnest heed to. And that's what the Jews chose. They chased after death to crucify the Messiah. And everything in these verses requires an action one way or the other. Everything. It's all of these are actions, all of these dangers. It's, it's an action verb that you go and do. You must do your part to choose life in service to the Lord. Look at Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and thy seed may live. See, God is, he, after you're saved, you have free will to get saved or not. Well, after you're saved, you still have that free will. You are a sovereign being. You can choose life or death after salvation. Do you obey God's commandments and chase after him? Or do you choose death like the children of Israel in the wilderness wanderings? And every one of them perished but two, Joshua and Caleb, if you were of the age of accountability those that were of 20 years old or up that could go to war. 
they all perished but two. And that's what's laying out before you. Look at Joshua 24. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood. Now that's an interesting statement. The gods on the other side of the flood, the fallen angels that were before the flood, that the whole world was worshiping. Are you, Joshua saying, going to choose to serve them? Or are you going to serve Yahweh, Jehovah, the one that delivered us out of bondage? The gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So God is setting before you, the same thing is true today. God is setting before you this very day, life and death. This day, blessing and cursing, choose life. That's what this whole book is about. Choose life. Do not let it drift and slip away. So we need to give heed to the word of God in this first warning so that we do not let the things of God slip. We should let them slip. At the very end of verse 1, lest any time we should let them slip. In the Greek, it means to glide by, lest we be carried by or passed by. It's really used of a boat. If any of you have ever seen this, a boat that's been untethered from its mooring, it's now kind of drifting in the waves, and just the tide is taking it slowly. It's to flow beside or pass, to slip, to glide by or pass by, to slip away and thus lose your inheritance. That's the danger of drifting. And again, this is the first of these five warnings, and each one's going to build on the other. Look at Proverbs 3, verses 21 and 22. My son, let, them, let not them depart from thine eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, so shall they be life unto thy soul and grace to thy neck. Let not them depart from thine eyes. Okay, the word of God, all through the Bible, the word of God, Jesus implores you, he that hath an ear, let him hear. Well, Satan's gateway is the eye. And Jesus is telling you, tune your ears into the Holy Spirit. But Satan's gateway is always the eye. Because why? There is no faith in what you see. In what you see in Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. There's no faith in anything you see. And so Satan's gateway is your eye. Can, you, can he get you looking at the world? Can he get you looking at those around you? Can he get you looking for your career as provision? Can he get you looking to a spouse or a friend or some celebrity or sports team or you just go down the list, anything? Can he get you looking at any of that to distract you? And what God is saying in Proverbs there is don't let it depart from your eyes. See, when you read the word of God, you're putting it at the forefront of your mind and in your heart, and you shouldn't let it depart there because it's the filter by which you see everything else then. And so as you build your faith in the word of God from Romans 10, 17, you're using the word as the filter to everything you see because that is you, where you build your faith. And so don't let Satan use your eye as a gateway. Instead, hold up everything that the world throws at you and let it come through that filter of the word of God. 
And in verse 2 here, for if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. See, the law was given by God through angels in Acts 7.53, who have received, we covered this in a lot of detail a couple weeks ago, but who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. Somehow the angels were involved in delivering the law to the children of Israel, to Moses and Joshua and others. Okay, it's a, this phrase here in Hebrews 2.2, 2, it's a Greek first-class conditional, which grammatically in this case, and according to the context, it means that the statement is true. So in other words, if the law through angels proved steadfast, and it did prove steadfast. It's kind of like we use similar figures of speech today where you hear this all the time. Well, if the sky is blue, you know, well, the sky is blue. So what you're saying is true. My father-in-law loves to use a phrase, do chickens have lips? And that's a no, chickens don't have lips. And so when you ask him something, I love you, Bill. When you ask something, you know, and it's a no, he'll say, do chickens have lips? And that means no. So that statement's false. I hope you're getting what I'm saying. If, every, if everyone in the Old Testament, what the Lord is saying here is, if everyone in the Old Testament received a just recompense of reward, and they did, they did receive that. So as a result, we have the same accountability. Okay, do you see what he's saying here? It's a, it's a sarcastic statement of sorts. And rewards and inheritance are the issues at hand. So you see this just recompense of reward really throughout the Bible. You see this all over in the Old Testament. Again, the Old Testament is 77% of God's word. And so it's the vast majority of what we have as God's word. But it's a just recompense of reward. If everyone in the Old Testament received that and the word was given by angels, by God through angels, how much more will we receive a just recompense of reward because we have a word given by the Son himself? Do you see, that's, how, that's why God is building this case all in chapter 1 of how Jesus was superior to the angels. So the two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, remember they disobeyed the law. This is all in Leviticus 10. They disobeyed the law by burning incense improperly, and God took them out of the game. They offered strange fire whatever that means. I can't wait to ask the Lord what that means, but they were, they were burning incense to some false God and they offered strange fire before the Lord in Leviticus 10 and God took them out. He, he, there was a just recompense of reward. Three rebels, Korah, Dathan, and Abraham led a rebellion against God's anointed servants, Aaron and Moses. Remember this in number 16? And God judged them by having the earth open up and swallow them. So remember this whole, this whole scene in number 16, they're leading this rebellion and God's people stand up and say, okay, all of you children of Israel, you come out of your tents to meet us tomorrow. And the one that's leading this rebellion, if they are in the wrong and God be not with them, let a new thing happen and the earth open up and swallow them. And that's exactly what happened. God carried them. Look at this in verses 30 through 33. But if the Lord make a new thing and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up with all that appertain unto them, and they go down quick into the pit, then ye shall understand 
that these men have provoked the Lord. You do not want to provoke the Lord. You don't want to do that. You are playing with fire if you provoke the Lord. And it came to pass as he had made an end of speaking all these words that the ground clave asunder that was under them and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up. But not just them, their houses and all the men that appertained unto Korah and all their goods, they and all that appertained to them went down alive into the bottomless pit, (laughs) into the pit and the earth closed upon them and they perished from among the congregation. And so their disobedience, their rebellion, got so far out of hand that that they wrapped their family up in the destruction with them. See, it's not just, if if you're here, if you're the man, if you're the head of the household, if you are the spiritual leader in your house as the husband and the spouse, you have a responsibility, a greater responsibility than your wife. Because if you go astray, your family can get wrapped up in it with you and be destroyed. It's a heavy, heavy call to be a husband. And it's one that I I hope that all of us in here are taking serious because there's more at stake than just you. It's your entire family. It's your wife. It's your children. And you are to lead them spiritually in with sober mind, vigilance, vigor in running the race and praying with them and just pouring the word of God into your children. That's what it's about is to stand up and be a godly man. And and I've shared this before, but when we started before the church started and the men's Bible study group was growing and growing and growing, one of the things God told me was, Matt, I had to change the hearts and the minds of the men first so that then the family could be led the right way to church. And it was something that, you know, frankly, I hadn't seen in my life uh, with a kid that grew up with a single mom. And how do you lead a family as a dad, as a, as a husband, as one that is chasing after the Lord? But this was going to be a church that husbands aren't being drugged to church. They're bringing their family and the authority of Jesus to church. And, and I love that. God has really multiplied that and blessed it. But don't, if you go astray, the family may get caught up in the rebellion, and that's, that's part of the warning here. In verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, by Jesus, the one that created everything, walked the earth and spoke, and, and spoke, and these people had the gospels and the word of God in their hand and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. So here's an example of where the the ghost writer includes himself in this, the we. See, if we neglect, and again, I just put Paul in a question mark because I I do think it's Paul, but you don't have to be dogmatic about it. It doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit wrote it. Notice that the Holy Spirit is confirming that the writer was not a first-person witness to Jesus before he ascended either, because at the end of this, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. So it's just a subtlety that, you know, it's like you didn't go hear the speech, but you're getting it firsthand from someone that was there, and you're writing about it. The Holy Spirit's writing about it through you. The word salvation here, it's soteria, 
how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? And again, it's these three tenses of salvation. It's justification, where you are saved once and for all, removed from the penalty of sin. Sanctification, where we all are right now. You're being removed from the power of sin as you chase after the Lord, and he chastens and shapes and molds and refines and burns things off of you. And then it's glorification, where you are once and for all removed from the very presence of sin itself. And if you don't look into the Greek word, when you hear the word salvation in the Bible, you could get kind of confused because in the English, we just say salvation. But in God's word, he's meaning three different things in this process of what we generically call salvation. So really, it's if we neglect so great glorification, that's what this Greek word means. It's, it's the word that refers to the future aspect, the glorification that is awaiting us if we hold fast. And there's the definition again. The word literally in the Greek means future salvation, the sum of benefits and blessings which the Christians redeemed from all earthly ills will enjoy after the visible return of Christ from heaven in the consummated and eternal kingdom of God. That is quite a definition of a Greek word. But that's what they, that's what they meant when they said that word. So it was, it was spoken by Jesus in a lot of his parables, this future aspect. So the whole point in verse 3 here is, if those in the Old Testament did not escape responsibility for what they did with their salvation, how much more will we be responsible? And notice the grammar of the sentence, the judgment that would come, you cannot escape if you neglect the grammar there. Do you see? It's... If we neglect so great a salvation, how can we escape? So, in other words, there's something you can do to escape, which is don't be negligent. That's the key. Don't be negligent of what you have for your walk with the Lord. If we neglect in the Greek, it means to become careless or to be apathetic toward. So it's, it's apathy growing, where if you neglect it. So these are people that have salvation but are becoming indifferent toward the responsibility that comes along with that salvation. Okay, that's, that's all comes out in the Greek. So neglecting is a choice. And in Revelation 19, we looked at this parable from Jesus of the wedding. Look at this. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son. And sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. So he, this father is preparing a marriage for his son and offering a kingdom. But look what happens in verse 5. But they made light of it. And that's the word the neglecting, that's the word there in the Greek. They made light of it. They neglected it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth. And he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. That's a heavy outcome. Uh, then saith he to his servants, the wedding is ready, but they which are bidden were not worthy. 
See, they, they let it slip. They drifted. They went away from the Lord. They were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. Now this is, this is in Revelation 19. We studied this. Remember the marriage of the lamb and the marriage supper of the lamb. Two different major events. Go back and watch that if you don't remember. But he saith unto him, Friend, how canst thou, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. It's almost like he was caught. He was somewhere he wasn't supposed to be, and the Lord's calling him out. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. And that has to do with your walk. One of my favorite things to think about in the Bible, in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 7, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. So you are to be an ambassador for the king. You don't take his name and do nothing with it. That's taking it literally in vain. It has nothing to do, again, with your vocabulary. I'm not advocating you should cuss, but that's not. The Lord isn't putting cussing as one of the top ten things you shouldn't do in your life. He's saying don't take his name. Don't become a believer. Don't become an ambassador and take it in vain. So the law was given by God to Moses. Angels had an active role, and although it came by the disposition of angels, anyone who disobeyed it received a just punishment. So this whole case the Lord is building here is that because Jesus is superior to the angels, how much more will we be accountable if we neglect the word given by the Son himself? And that's what God is is building here. So verse 4, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. God is bearing witness to this incredible responsibility by authenticating it in three ways. It was spoken by Jesus directly, not an angel, but by the Son. The apostles were eyewitnesses to what Jesus spoke The miraculous nature was confirmed by signs, wonders, miracles, and gifts of the Spirit according to God's will. So he's authenticating this in three ways. So gifts of the Holy Ghost, when you think about this, I remember in in junior high or high school and youth group, we did a whole test of fill out this personality profile, and and they're going to tell you what gift from the Holy Ghost you, you have, right? What's your giftedness? And you latch onto that and you're supposed to figure out, okay, how do I use that my whole life? And I never felt easy with it myself. I just always had to check about it. But when you look at gifts of the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible, all of these lists have different gifts. None of them say this is an all-inclusive list. None of them say that you can only have one of these gifts. So keep that in mind, that if we just search the scriptures, what does God say about it? Not what does man say, what does God say? And my personal conviction on it is that as you grow more and more and more like Jesus, does Jesus, is he the the epitome of every one of these? 
Yes, he's the ultimate prophet. He's the ultimate priest. He's the ultimate teacher. He's the ultimate healer. He's the ultimate administrator. You go down the list, he's the ultimate of every one of these. And you are going to grow in any of them that the Lord leads you in and gives to you as you get closer and closer to him. You will grow as a teacher. You may grow as an evangelist. You may grow as an administrator. You may grow as an exhorter. You may grow as a prophet. You may grow as... Don't put yourself in a pigeonhole where you think you only have one of these and you've got to focus on it and operate in it because the Holy Spirit may lead you in such a way that you realize, wow, as I draw closer to God, I am becoming more and more like him in this area and this area. It may not be all of them. It may be just two. It may be one. Whatever, And it's according to his will. And we're, we're going to see that. But in 1 Corinthians 12, now there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues, but all that worketh that one and the selfsame spirit dividing to every man severally as he will. Look at Romans 12. For as we have many members in one body and all members have not the same office, so we being many as one body in Christ and every one members one of another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that he has given to us. Whether prophecy, let us prophesy among according to the prop, proportion of faith. Now, that's an interesting phrase. So, you could have a gift that as you grow in the Word of God, from Romans ten seventeen, as you grow in your faith, you operate greater in it as proportion to your faith. Now, that's pretty powerful to think about. Or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do so with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. So when you look at this, and there are other lists in the Bible you can go through and, and dig some others out. I, I don't know that we have a list containing all of them myself. But I made a list of 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. When you look at each of those gifts and you just check, okay, this chapter had some of these. Romans 12 had some of these others. Some had both. Prophecy was in both. But ministry was only in Romans 12, not in 1 Corinthians 12. Gifts of healing was in 1 Corinthians 12, but not in Romans 12. So you can kind of see the difference that God's laying out here. So you've got to search the whole counsel of God and figure out, what are all these different gifts of the Spirit? And, and as you grow cl closer and closer to the Lord, you will operate in them according to his will and in proportion to your faith. So, all right, that closes Hebrews 2 today. So one of the things that the Lord talked to Randy and I a lot about was rebuilding the altar recently. And so we're going to do something kind of special here at the end. But the call to action for all of us is to get in the Word of God. 
and get in the Word of God. And I mentioned, what is it? What is faith? Hebrews 11.1. 1. Why is it important? Hebrews 11.6. For without faith, it is impossible to please him. So how do you get it? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And you're supposed to do it daily, Acts 17.11, the namesake of the, the men's group that meets here 6.30 a.m. on Fridays. Be here. Uh, do not be negligent. Run that you may obtain, 1 Corinthians 9.24. And to do that, you've got to build your faith so that whatever the, the world throws at you, you are ready to receive it and to counter it with the word of God and move on because Jesus takes care of it quick. If you're in him, he handles it very quickly and he'll put it down. So don't be negligent. Can you go to the next slide, Austin? Okay, the, the strongholds. This actually ties into what we're going to do here for a second with the altar. When you study the children of Israel in Judges and Joshua, again, they went into the promised land, and there were areas that they did not listen to the Lord, where the Lord said, wipe out everything in this area, and they didn't do it. And later on, you find out which areas those were. Today, we know them as the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, and the Golan Heights. And if you pay attention to the Jerusalem News, the Jerusalem Post, or any Israeli news, global news, you'll see that those are the same three areas they get bombarded all the time in. Because you go all the way back to Judges and Joshua, they didn't tear down those strongholds. They didn't tear them down. And so they lingered and they festered. And those things were built back up by the enemy. 2 Corinthians 10.3 for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. This is a spiritual war that we are in. This is not a war of the flesh. We are in a spiritual war. And, and nobody here is just playing church. This is a war. We are at war with the enemy, and the enemy wants to kill us. But Jesus wants to kill him also from Genesis 3.15. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to, to the pulling down of strongholds. Numbers thirty-three fifty-five. But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which ye let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall vex you in the land wherein ye dwell. So if you don't get rid of it, they are going to be a burden on you constantly. That's what God is saying in Numbers 33. You have to get rid of them and tear them down. Do not let them be a thorn in your side. And so my question as we, as we prepare to do this is what stronghold in your life has God told you to eradicate? And is it completely destroyed? Is it totally wiped out? Do you know for certain that it is gone? And if you have a doubt in your mind about that, the answer is probably no. If you're questioning that, if you're wondering, have I really submitted that to the Lord? Because he is so faithful and just to take that off of you. And so our entire church, since we started in November the 29th of 2020, we've never had an altar call. And, and I told all of you, I shared this at church some weeks ago, that when the Lord took me and, and for months, how he had been telling me, Matt, there's an attack coming on the church and how he took me that one Saturday morning before church to show me who's leading the charge and how it was Satan. 
And then those angels rushed in and took all of their positions and were ready to war with us from the Lord. Well, what he's brought to light the last couple of weeks is that Satan is leading the charge, but Satan, he's a general, right? I mean, he is out there warring against us, but he also has all of what we've been studying, these principalities, these powers, the wickedness in high places, these foul and unclean spirits that seek to get in, that do his bidding. And one of the spirits that he has showed Randy and I the last week or so that Satan is trying to use to infiltrate the church is the spirit of Jezebel. And when you look at and you really study her throughout the Bible, it is, it's evident what comes along with that. And one of the things that she did was she tore down the altars in the Old Testament. She, she tried to tear them down. In 1 Kings 18, 30, And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Remember, Elijah stood up with that fire from God. And he went to war against Jezebel. And he, and he was not going to let her infiltrate and tear down his ministry. And we're not going to let that happen. We, we in this church are not going to let the enemy take anyone astray and consume them and destroy them. There's nobody here that we're going to let that happen to. And so 1 Kings 18.30, what, we what Randy really laid on her heart, the Lord mentioned this, that we've never had an altar call at church. And, and so the altar call is not about salvation. If you need salvation, yes, absolutely. But as we were talking about it, she was like, well, who do we ask to come down here? To My whole life growing up, the altar call was, if you need prayer, uh, so-and-so will be down here, and so-and-so will be down here, and you can come up and, and pray with them, right? That's, that's how it was in my church forever growing up. And, and I was sitting there yesterday praying about this and asking the Lord, Lord, who do, we, who do we even have come down to pray with people? And he said, no one. And I said, okay, what does that mean? <laughs> And he said, you tell them that I am will meet them. And uh, so if you've, if you've got something in your life that you need to lay down at the feet of Jesus, this is that time for you to come down and to meet him. And he said, tell them that I am here, that I am will meet them. He will be here to meet you. You don't need to run to anyone else. You don't need prayer from me or Randy or anyone else. You need the counselor. And it's Isaiah 9-6. One of my favorite titles of Jesus is the counselor. He is that great counselor. And he wants whatever you are carrying in your life, whatever it is, if you need healing for a family member, if you need, I'm praying for healing for my mom, who's dying right now, if you need healing for a marriage, for children, if you need something in your career, if you need something, if you have a need of any kind, that's what God is. He is love, and love is an action. It's not an emotion. God is love. Love meets the needs of his people. And what he does for God so loved the world that he gave 
See, it's, an, it's tied to an action that he gave his only begotten son. And so if you want to come down here and pray about anything and lay it at the altar of God, I don't care what it is. It doesn't matter how big or small you think it is. He's here to meet you. The counselor is here to meet you. And that's exactly what he told me was tell them I will be there. I'll meet them. And I was trying to find a song to play because at first I thought, well, okay, do, do we get Chris and Kelly Mason up here to sing so people can come down? And he said, no, they need to, they need to be available to come. And, and I'm not telling you guys to come. Don't misunderstand. I'm just saying God said he wants you available to pray, to, to lay something down. And so I, I really sought this morning, what, would, what song do you want us to play? And he gave me this incredible video. Um, it's a song about the throne room and going to the throne room with Jesus. And so it's about seven minutes long. We're just going to play it. I am totally going to step away. And if you guys have anything you want to come lay down, just come and do that and, and give it to the Lord today because he wants to take that yoke off of your neck that you were not fit to ever carry. That's what he wants. He wants to take anxiety off of you. He wants to take depression off of you. He wants to take demonic strongholds and tear them down and look you in the eye right now and say, where are your accusers? Because they're not here. And so with that, I'm just going to pray real quick, step away, and we'll play the song. Lord, I thank you so much for this time together. God, I pray that your glory would fill this place. Lord, I thank you that months ago last year that Randy saw your glory in this place. God, I pray that you would step in this room right now, that you would tear down strongholds, that you would raise up people out of bondage that are fit to run the race for you, and that it run it freely without a pack on their back, without shackles on their ankles, without the cares of the world trying to choke out your word. God, let this be a time where you meet your people and they lay it at your feet. God, again, we thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, we pray all of these things, Lord. Meet us here. Amen.